In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Welcome to the Man Card Podcast and our mission to build an army of men in the arena who are becoming the best version of themselves in changing their world. Males are born. Men are made. We're going to separate the men from the boys. A man is as a man does. We want to help you to become the best version of you. Theodore Roosevelt spoke about this rare breed, saying the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. That's awesome. The man card belongs to those protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. A man is as a man does. Enjoy today's episode. men in the arena army we, we salute, salute you guys we honor you today because you are grinding it out in the stress bubble of life thank you for listening to this episode of the man card podcast where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to manhood our goal today guys as you know is to call you into the arena of manhood to call you out of the faceless nameless male dominated bleachers and to call you up to become the best version of you because when a man gets it Everyone wins. I'm Jim Ramos. As you hear, no, I am here with my two good buddies. On the right, I've got the PhD of sound, Dr. Pat George, the mix master. Yo, 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 what's up? What's up, boy? Good. <laughs> I'm outstanding. Oh, my gosh. That <laughs> was, was that? What's up, boy? What's up, dog? <laughs> what's up, dog? <laughs> oh, man, that's scary. And then on my left, I've got the backbone of the MCP, our producer, my good friend, Dale. The man, Colford. Oh, man. How you doing, my man? I'm just doing being the man awesomely. Okay, I don't know what that means, Is but that hey, do word? you have a man word I'm for I'm being a man awesome-like, you know? So That's, that's yeah. Sweet. All right. Thanks. Hey, I want to really like get going on our podcast. Yeah. I've, I've got a lot of questions for our, our uh, guests today, but man word, I'm going to guess it. Can I guess the man word? You can always guess I, I'm going to guess it because I'm going to go with the word chase. Mm. Am I right? So close, yet so far away. No, yeah, that is super close, man. Really? What was the word? Pursue. Ooh, out of his other book he wrote, Chasing God, huh? Is that where you got it? Pursue. See, I knew you were going to go that way. Well, the word was pursue in his bio, so I'm like, ah, it was pursuit, actually, and so I chose pursue. But it's important that we pursue the right things that are going to sharpen us and make us stronger. Pursuing. Oh, I thought you said Beirut. You said Peru. Pursue. I said okay. pursue, yeah. <laughs> Beirut. Why would he choose Beirut as a man word? Yeah. Beirut. That's beautiful. Because only the tough survive yeah. in Beirut. Only okay. I can That's come right. up with a use for that, too. Yeah, so pursuit. I like that. Okay, good, yeah. good, good. I think that now, and pursuing a pursuit in what context? What does well, a man pursue? Many things, but uh, 
pursuing relationships that are going to make you healthy and stronger and just pursuing the right things in life instead of the things that are going to tear you down. Oh, yeah, I think that's really good. And the great hunt for God is all about pursuing God. And I think our guests would are, would also agree that it's about also as married men, we want to pursue our wife. And so, good stuff. Well, hey, I'm really excited today. Do you have a shout-out for me on iTunes? We have an iTunes review you want to give a shout-out yes. to? Yes. Well, I, I know who this guy is because uh, his partial his name is in there. So, it's S. Catlin 8, which I believe is Seth Catlin. Hey, man, thanks for the awesome review. And... Uh, if you guys out there listening, uh, go on and make a review on our podcast. Uh, we'd love to send you some swag. So, uh, Seth, I'll be reaching out to you and seeing if we can't send you something pretty awesome. So, All right. Yeah. Hey, and also, I'm really excited. We hit 10,000 on our Men in the Arena Facebook group. And the cool thing is my son Darby added the man who was the 10,000th man. So that was really cool. And uh, just to have that forum with guys interacting, it's just amazing. It's a great platform for guys to understand what it means to be a Christian man. And also, if you haven't done so yet, guys, make sure you go and upload our free The Great Hunt for God app. Uh, I think it's the best app out there with uh, that have a men's ministry focus. So, guys, make sure you go grab that. Hey, I'm really excited about today. Our guest and a new friend, Dr. Donald Minter. He is 58 years old. He's been a pastor for 37 years. He's authored... Six books, uh, including Chasing God, which I have in my library, and the one we're going to talk about today, which is 31 Days to Paradise, Creating the Marriage You Dreamed About. He's authored six books. Like I said, he loves to do extreme hikes. He does rim to rim and back again, 44 miles every year in the Grand Canyon, which I'm in, baby. I want to do that, along with their 40, 40 now 50-mile death march. And uh, he's very proud of his latest work, which is a video series for the 31 Days to paradise. His passion is equipping men to be godly warriors, which is right along what we're doing. He's been married to his beautiful wife, Laura, for 39 years and has three children, Dustin, 36, Derek, 32, and Michael, 13. Three boys and one one surprise child, I see. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's great to have you on the show, Don. How are you doing today, sir? You know, I couldn't be doing any better. Just having a great day. It's a beautiful day up here in the mountains, about 68 degrees, sun shining, dry weather. It's awesome. And you're in Flagstaff, you said? I'm in Flagstaff, Arizona. I've been back here the last two years. Just love it up here. And is that at about 7,800 feet elevation? What is that? You're close. More like 71, but by the time we get up on the mountain to ski, we jump off at about 11.2s. Wow. Yeah, I've been through there. That's a nice, uh, been through there on missions trips on the Navajo. Bunch around here. It's, it's awesome. Well, it's great to have you on my show, man. We're going to throw you in right now. We're going to get you started and warmed up, and we're going to throw you right into our rapid-fire round. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, what I've chosen for you, Don, is the author's round. So I'm going to ask you uh, five questions about being an author, and just give me the first thing that comes to your mind. All right, here we go. If your wife wrote a book, and I know she co-authored 31 Days with you, but if she wrote a book on her own, and it was about life being married to you, what would she call that book? Exhausting. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, at least she wouldn't call it di- a divorcing. <laughs> so, oh, man. Hey, here's a question, and I think that you know I face this all the time. And What insecurities surface when you write a book? Oh, I, when I write a book, it's terrifying. You know, the worst thing... I always talk about is when you actually put on black in black and white what you think, you know you're going to get critiqued. And I don't care what the topic is, you're going to get hammered from one side or the other. 
And I think that's the hardest part of writing is that you have to be willing to say what you mean, mean what you say, and then be able to interact with those who think differently than you do. And 31 Days to Paradise, uh, case in point, you know, the complementarians uh, are at war now with all the non-complementarians. First question I got when the book went out, are you a complementarian? And I just laughed. I thought, well, here we go. Didn't take long for that to get started. Oh, that's too funny. Well, when you write a book, how long do you take to write that book? Like, how, what's the duration of the book writing? And then how much time do you chunk out each day? Well, I'm a firm believer that I, you write every day. Every author, author that I work with, and I help several, uh, the key to writing is writing. So I say to yeah. all of them, your goal every day is to write a page. And it doesn't matter whether you use it or not, you write it. I encourage people to do it first thing in the morning just to get it over with. Uh, many of the books that I've worked on, I guess out of the, the, especially the devotional series, take me a year. I do a page a day, 365 days. Um, but I, my target in writing, Jim, is a page a day. If I get a page a day done, I feel like I've had a great day. And that was that about five hundred words ish, maybe a little more. Yeah, most of mine uh, for the devotional series, we divide them actually uh, like chasing God, then is followed by by more chasing God. I did one called Mornings with Oswald, which is a a journey with Oswald Chambers. I had used Chambers, you know, from my devotional life decades. And a lot of my peers say, Don, you should do a work to accompany this for those of us who've read Oswald for 20, 30 years. Yeah. So that project took a little over a year, and they come out right at 400 pages. Wow. Yeah. that's I did one, a field guide. It's our bathroom book for men, and it's a 365-day deal. And that, yep. those are really yep. long and intimidating looking, but if you chunk them up into one day at a time, they're not that bad. So yeah. what's, do you have a favorite quote right now that's uh, on your mind, a heart, a quote that you like to go back to? You know, I don't know if I favorite quote of all one of these i've been laughing about lately as doesn't relate it at all is is actually out of chasing or more chasing god it's by J.R. tolkien and i'm going to mess this up a little bit uh but the character from lord of the rings it's it's one of the books i just wrote last year says i would love to save the shire but i have discovered that the people of the shire are a bit dumb and so some days i think the best thing would be an earthquake or a flood of dragons. Oh <laughs> and my I just gosh. laugh, and I think, boy, for those of us who work with people, I, you know, I've spent my last 30 years working with people, and I say as a pastor, Jim, one of the, the hardest things about preaching is to preach your heart out to, you know, do a podcast or whatever it is, and to see so little change if don't actually apply. You know, they've got to embrace it and apply it. And so one of the things I'm working with the group of men that I'm working with right now is patience, uh, perfect patience. Just did that out of First Timothy and talking about being patient with others who are on journey but may not be moving as quickly as you do. And I think it's really critical for leaders to understand the perfect patience of Christ, to have a long-term view in mind not get so caught up in what is or isn't happening in the short term. Uh, even though sometimes you want to go Bilbo Baggins on them, huh? <laughs> I, it, I don't know about you, but that you know, it's one of the things for me that I, I find myself sometimes. And I've noticed it's gotten worse as I've gotten older, and I think it's because I'm winding down. I'm almost 59. I'm realizing i got four, five, ten years left of significant ministry. So everything's become a rush now. And yeah. that's a... That's a huge change for me. I'm just entering that phase. Yeah, and I get, you know, I know for me being in ministry, you get a little cynical sometimes. You can see what's going to happen before it happens and 
And uh, it can be frustrating to watch lives unwind when they don't have to unwind. And you can see the easy fix. And so, But we're yep. going to talk okay. about that with marriage here today. So do you have a favorite book from another author? Well, my favorite I mentioned already is Oswald Chambers. Yeah. Um, I, I just love that work, and I've, I, I use it continually. It's amazing to me that a book 100 years old uh, has so much relevance and insight uh, to living today. So that's probably my favorite, to be honest. With you. you know, my most profound moment with my Oswald Chambers uh, devotion was when he said something like, God is not as concerned about you working for him as he is about you working with him. Yep. And that phrase yep. has really stuck with me. So, hey, in five minutes, Don, tell us a little bit more about your story, things you enjoy, hobbies, anything else you'd like the, our listeners to hear. Well, you know, my story began in high school. I was a football player, played for a very successful program, played basketball, um, didn't know the Lord really. Um, I had a, uh, Laura and I were dating, and uh, the pastor of the church said, hey, girl, you need to drop that deadbeat and go to a Christian university and find a godly man. And uh, she came home, he told me that. I went to church, sat there and glared at him for an entire worship service, met him in the foyer, ready to go to war. And we kind of went at it right there in the foyer, right after church. And uh, he called me later that week, and he said, hey, I want to apologize to you. I said, you should apologize to me for the blah, blah, blah. He said, no, I'm not apologizing for what I told Laura. He said, I'm apologizing for losing my cool in the foyer. Make a long story short, uh, he came to one of our football games, and that began our relationship. And to get to our games, we had sold-out crowds every every week. He was right there in front row, actually waved at me, and then invited me to play ball with the men of the church. And I thought I was going to go and teach these men of the church a thing or three about basketball. And I think I was 18 years old. I walked on the court. Their, their forward played for Oklahoma. Their center played for Temple University. And needless to say, I was on my rear end more than I was standing up. And uh, they would help me back up off the floor. And it was my first encounter with what I came to call godly warriors, men of God uh, who were meek, not weak, could put you on their your butt in a heartbeat. And that changed my life. It was out of that that I came to know Christ, began to understand a little bit about what it meant to be a godly man. And uh, from there, I was at Drexel University studying to be an E major electrical engineer. And uh, God called me into the ministry about the same time he was speaking to Laura's heart. We had been married about, uh, I don't know, six weeks and uh, from there, went to Northwest Nazarene and studied for the ministry, and the rest is history. Spent the last four decades serving the Lord in little local churches, and I suppose maybe a church or two, and, and have just thoroughly enjoyed our journey. So you were married six weeks and God called you into ministry. That must have been a, quite a shock for Laura. You know, she actually said at the time, I woke her up late at night, I said, I need, I need to tell you something that's really on my heart, and, um, you know, I was a fairly new Christian, and Laura, if I remember right, her response was, I was wondering when you were going to let me know, and so she <laughs> was, I think the hard part for us at 18 and 19 years of age was moving 2,500 miles, and that shaped much of how our marriage would develop because we were stripped of all family and friends, quickly thrown into a new environment, new part of the country. Neither one of us had, you know, ever been near the Mississippi. So to cross it and head to, to Nampa, Idaho, it was quite the life changing event for the next three years. Beautiful Nampa, Idaho. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. Well, Hey, th- speaking of marriage, I really, uh, I really appreciated your book. 
31 Days of Paradise, Creating the Marriage You've Dreamed About. I was not surprised, but usually what surprised me about the book is usually when I read a book, the author has one or two really solid points. But because your book was a, I would call it a month-long devotional for couples, that it just, each thing was a surprise, and you walked through Ephesians chapter 5, and I really resonated with some key things, and if it's okay with you, I want to focus on that book and ask you some questions that I had, and I want you to explain a couple things that to our listeners I think will be life-changing. So this thing, I usually don't read the prefix, but I actually mistakenly started reading, thinking it was introduction. And I got to Roman numerals 12 and 13, where you said, somehow, once the marriage license is signed, everything changes in the blink of an eye. And then the next page, this first year, surprisingly, is often the most, or is often the hardest. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'm going to fast forward to page 77, because these all tie in. You said, quote, marriage is a learned art form. Learn it early and avoid the pain of ignorance. So here's my question, Don. And I know you you do weddings and, and counsel couples all the time. How do you deal with uh, cohabitating couples that would say, well, because of this statement, uh, yeah, we're going to live together because of that statement right there? Well, every, you know, I'm like you. Every couple, it seems like I, I counsel now, premarital, the whole nine yards, have lived together first. Yeah. And so I think what... When I encounter couples, which is most of them who have lived together first now, you have to give them the bad news that living together, you think you're practicing, but it's nothing like being married. The contract itself, the signed dotted line, changes the relationship in a profound way. And all the couples I work with, you know, I say to them, now listen, when you wake up tomorrow morning and you're officially married, uh, you're going to sense something's different, and it really is different. Uh, you are now anchored to each other. We talk about it in the book. You know, you're now the three-legged race if you're not careful, and you'll run that way for the rest of your life. So I, I think couples now are beginning to understand uh, that living together, uh, you think you're practicing, you're really not, because the nature of the relationship is going to change instantaneously and powerfully the minute the back door is closed and I can't e- easily exit. I just did a wedding ceremony last weekend for a couple who was living together. And uh, actually, they actually moved out of the house after our first meeting and did not live together up until the marriage. Right. And But it's really interesting because I think when you live together, and I'm, I, I want to bring this up because we have a lot of guys listening to this podcast that are probably in a cohabitating relationship. And what they don't realize is everything about cohabitation is based on Either it's a test or it's a convenience. All the things they 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 the, all the motivators to this cohabitating relationship are all things that will tear down a relationship. The, at the heart of the motivation, what do you think about that? I totally agree. And I what you're really learning to do is how to how to terminate a relationship. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. The, yeah, yeah. Most of the couples I work with, this isn't their first run at it. And so, uh, you know, we just deal with the reality that you're not learning to be married. What you're learning, uh, the other thing I think, too, Jim, we have to really keep ahead of it. You're still faking it when you're living together. You're still kind of, you know, you you haven't fully exposed who you are. You're still in that let's make a good impression mode. And yep. not that that disappears, but the longer I'm around you, sooner or later, I catch you in that moment of unprotectedness, if you will. And I see things I, I haven't seen before, and, and some of them aren't pretty. Absolutely right. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Now, I read somewhere, and I can't quote it, 
but that the divorce rate for cohabiting couples is actually around 70%. Is that true? I I've, I mean, we all talk about it. I, I read a, a book just, oh, it's probably been two years ago on marriage. I can't think of the name, the, the author's title, but they point out the highest divorce rate in the country is those who live together first. And that alone ought to tell you there's something about the experience of living together first mm-hmm. that sets up false expectations and false realities. And the minute we sign on that dotted line, we simply go, oh, my. And it changes. And I don't care who you are. I've, I've yet to have a couple that say to me, oh, nothing changed. It all changes. Yeah. It really does once that contract is signed. Oh, I mean, what I tell people is once the ring is on the man's finger, he goes, oh, now I can stop pursuing her and go on to the next conquest. And That's she exactly. says, now I can start fixing him. <laughs> yep. Now that I've exactly got exactly right, great way to word oh, it. Oh man! Well, you said in your prefix something that was very powerful. You said that qu- couples should ask a very important question. I've never thought of this before, and I want you to walk me through this. But the question that you ask them to uh, look into is, "What kind of marriage do you want to create in the days ahead?" Why that question? Well, I don't know what you're experiencing, but most of the couples I work with now don't have a long-term plan, nor do they think this marriage is going to last. For me, having pastored almost 40 years now, that's the biggest shift. When I was marrying people 40 years ago, this was for life. Yeah. Now, they may not make it, but that's what they thought. When I marry couples today, rarely do I get this. We're in it for, you know, the long—this is going to be— they have this mindset in the back of their head that we're going to do this for a while until it isn't what we thought it was going to be. Now, when I ask couples the question, you know, we say this about this book. This book isn't for couples that want the great privilege of saying, we made it 60 years together. It was hell, but we made it. That's not the target audience we're after. We're saying to couples, my wife and I, after 39 years of marriage, are having more fun now delighting in each other more now than we ever have we have the whole ball of wax we're still chasing each other around the bedroom we're still laughing together we're still enjoying our lives together so we're literally saying to couples listen don't read this book if you just want an average relationship because this book isn't designed for average relationship this book is designed to have the marriage you dreamed about and i can tell you with great honesty Man, I adore the woman I'm married to, and we've worked really hard to create a relationship where we're best friends, we're lovers, and all the things that go with that, which is pretty tricky stuff considering we were the two of the most self-centered human beings on the planet. We were both firstborns. When I told my mom we were getting married, she said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You two are the selfish, most selfish creatures on the planet. I thought she was wrong. Didn't take me learn, long to learn. She was absolutely right. Well, I I love some of the pictures in this book, and you talked about this, so we're both selfish. Now we get married, and we enter into this gunny sack, three-legged race. I love that picture. Can you walk us through this illustration of marriage and the three-legged race? Well, we we talk about a lot that because we were Christians, and and we had gone to, you know, some premarital counseling, that kind of thing, and there was this idea in our head for some reason that you had to do everything together, you had to love the same. Well, we knew in the first year, it, it, we're in year 39, there's very little we enjoy doing together. Uh, we, we love going to the movies, we love traveling, uh, we love making love together, we love uh, eating out a little bit and having coffee, that's about it. Once the hiking starts, once the shopping starts, once the 
we're done. I don't. And so early in our marriage, you know, I was determined to be a good man of God. So I went shopping with Laura and we tell the story in the book at Echelon Mall. I mean, it's just hilarious to think about. She threw me out after about 10 minutes. She said, this is awful. You're done. Go home. I don't, this is not fun with you. Well, I'm thinking, hey, I'm a model husband here, girl. I'm suffering for Jesus so that I can walk in these stores with you. Uh, Thankfully, that's the last time we shopped together. And out of that experience came, you know, I laugh on the video, Jim. She, She laughs, and I say to her on the video, thank you for not making me shop with you anymore. Well, I haven't shopped with her in 38 years. I don't plan to later unless I have to. It's it's the idea that in a good relationship, the things that made you who you are as a human being, so the things that made Laura, Laura, a lot of those things aren't things I want to do with her. But I want her to do them because that's what makes her her, and I love her. So that's kind of the idea of the three-legged race. Go ahead and cut the rope, run your independent courses, and then come back for times together fully renewed, having enjoyed what you do. Laura doesn't do these extreme hikes with me. Uh, We laugh, one of the things we laugh about now, in fact, in our small group at the marriage groups last night, we were talking about naked and afraid, and my wife said to the group, I know this maniac wants to do naked and afraid. He's out of his mind. The chances of me taking my jacket off are zero. So we laughed in that whole concept of you got to give each other space to do the things that you enjoy without dragging your partner into the activity because they they really don't enjoy it. Now, that's really good. I mean, you made a comment earlier. You said that you and your wife are best friends. Later on in the book, you talk about uh, setting your wife as the highest priority. Now, I was doing a wedding about a year and a half ago, and I told the young groom that he, he is to make her the most important person in his life. She is to make him the most important person in her life. And the father of the bride stood up and said, I disagree with that in the wedding. So, <laughs> so this, yeah, and it was really awkward because it was my brother. <laughs> so, and so, but, but here's the secret. I think this is the thing that you said. It, you know, you don't have to do everything together, but she still needs to be the most important person in your life. Do you agree with that? And if so, explain. Well, it- I have to ask, everything I, ha- I do in life, you know, you know when you get married and when you have children, you go from being uno to number two, then the kids come, now you're number three, then the next kid, now you're number four. Your role as a husband is to enhance the quality of life for your wife and your children. And so when Laura comes to me and says, I want to do X, Y, and Z, my, my response to that is, is this going to edify the woman that I adore? Now, the flip side to that is, Laura loves to sing. She loves to go to concerts. Now, I'm kind of a weird duck. I'd rather go to the dentist than go to a concert. Sitting there and listening to it, just not my thing. I'm a doer. I don't want to sit there and listen to that. When she comes back, she is renewed. She's energized. She's excited. And her cup overfloweth. And I always say to guys, I get the overflow. Now she's ready to focus on me. What can I do for you, sweetheart? And she offers me the same gift. I, my son and I, we go skiing three times a week. Laura has zero interest in being high, zero interest in being cold, zero interest in going down a mountain. She waves goodbye. We come back seven or eight hours later. We're refreshed, renewed, and she gets all the bennies of that. So when I care about you, I ask the question, what really edifies you? What is it you dig? And if I don't dig it, 
then I don't need to do that with you because, frankly, I'm going to drag you down while you're doing it. So when she goes to sing in her singing group with the gals or they do a concert, I bet my wife's done, I don't know how many concerts over the last decade. I think I've been to one. And it's just not my thing. And she's okay with that. Conversely, she doesn't want to do lots of the stuff that I do. And we both thrive in that environment. Well, and you talked about this. Uh, you talked about earlier shopping. And I, I mean, I used to kick my wife's heels on accident. I was dragging behind her. You know, I'm making this big sacrifice. I'm suffering. Yep. But in your book, you talk about something I thought was really, really good, man. You said this sacrifice with a potential payoff at the end. For me, when I was a young man, it was I'll rub your back knowing that my sacrifice is going to produce sex, right? You call this your stinking bag, stinky badge of courage. Can you walk us yeah. through the stinky badge of courage and how it it's kind of flies in the face of, of flies in the face of true sacrifice? Yep. Well, the way you know the difference is if I'm bitter, if I I you know, we call it the stinking fish syndrome, you know, I, <laughs> I I'm doing this, but I'm going to make you miserable, you know, I, I was working with a, a group last night and the gal said, well, I do it, but then I pout for three days. And, uh, you know, that's that, that stench that begins to come off of your sacrifice. And so what, what we say to couples is if, if it's authentic in love and it's authentic and I really want to do this for you, then the sacrifice doesn't stink. It actually has a pleasant aroma and your partner just thrives because you don't make them feel guilty about what it is they're doing that that you're sacrificing for so you know if i'm pouting or whatever then it has that reverse effect where i'm actually creating a rotten environment in fact i had a guy about three weeks ago was working through the book we do workshops and you know and then couples work through it and he literally posted online in one of the dialogue law groups he said i'm sitting here in new mexico and the stench coming off of me is ruining the room and i laughed <laughs> You know, because he knew he was doing this for his wife, but he was bitter, he was angry, his attitude sucked, and so he's making everybody in the room pay for this sacrifice that he was offering up, which, frankly, was just a stink, and it was polluting the room, and he'd have been better off to knock it off and just go home. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. You called that the if-then clause, and what yeah. I what I refer that to is ledger people. We're ledger people, right? Well, I did yeah. these things for you. You should do these things for us. And the the sacrifice of Jesus is is what you're playing off of here. Is he didn't have a motivation beyond getting everybody into heaven? I mean, it, he his motivation was pure. His sacrifice was pure. But ours so often uh, is a stench. Let me. We're gonna cu- take a short break, uh, uh, Don. I want to come right back and talk about that. Here we go. We're going to hear from our sponsors. The Man Card Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that's building an army of men who are becoming the best version of themselves and changing their world. The war to change your world is epic. Every battle counts and every man in the arena matters. So get in the game by joining our closed Facebook forum for men called The Men in the Arena. There, you'll lock arms with men from all around the world who are stepping up as their best version. What is a man? What does he do? How does he live? When does he know when he's crossed over from male to man? The lines defining manhood have become blurred, and guys today are more confused than ever. That's why I wrote the man card, five characteristics separating men from boys. Guys, you're going to love this book. Go to the Great Unforgot app or mancardpodcast.com and pick up a copy 
today. No book written defines manhood in such a way as this. I'll put the man card next to any book ever written on the topic. Yes, I believe it's that good. In the man card, I expose several myths of manhood and draw a line in the sand between men and males. This book will change your life. Guys, thank you so much for jumping into the arena with us today and championing the greatest battle of our time. Become your best version. Join the fight to change your world because when you get it, everyone wins. Okay, we're back, guys. So, so Don, so what do you think about this? What's the danger of an if-then clause in the marriage covenant? Well, let's, let's be very honest first off. The if-then is always there. It's, it's the idea that if I make this sacrifice, when my wife rolls back in from whatever that was, there's a payoff for me. She's, she's enriched. She's delighted. She's happy to focus on me. So I don't, I don't want us to give this false impression that there's no if-then. When I come back from skiing, you better believe when I walk in the door, I am focused on Laura. I'm going to cook dinner. I'm going to do whatever it is because she has genuinely sacrificed for me. Now, having said that, Jesus makes it very clear that my sacrificial giving toward her cannot be if-then based. It's, Don, do this. Lay down your life for her, whether you get a payoff or not. But the wise spouse recognizes boy, if my partner's doing this for me, I'm going to come back with a payoff for them. And when that happens, then you get in this very positive, what I call a positive if-then cycle, which is to say, I'm going to do this for you, and when I get back, you're going to, you're going to be delighted because I'm going to focus on you because I'm just overflowing because of the gift you've given me. So I don't, I don't want to give the impression that we don't, have an if then I, but what i do want to say to men and women is if your spouse gives you an if boy you better come back with a then you you really do want to reward them because if you don't you only have so many ifs before the sacrifice begins to stink jim and and yeah. wise partners know that that if if i'm giving 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 and there's no payoff eventually I, I get an attitude. Now, there's a cure for that, you know, which is that intimate relation with Jesus, relationship with Jesus that lets you keep giving when the thens don't show up. But, boy, you're really pushing the bubble, the limits of the bubble, when you're depending, dependent on that. So I think wise partners give back to their partners after those moments of sacrifice. Yeah, that is that is a great statement. And I think we want to give, but everybody has their limits. And by the time they come into the office after 10 years of marriage and one's given, 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 the other's taken, 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 you've got a massive yep. problem on your hands. Well, you know, speaking about being wise, you said something really interesting. I want you to walk us through this early on. in your. You said this numerous times in the book. You said that you've been married to six different women. Now, um, I, I know you're not a big fan of polygamy, but can you explain that you've been married to six different women? Well, one of the things that happens when you get married, Laura was 18 years of age. Um, the woman that she was going to become was still a decade away. Uh, um, the woman that I'm married to now uh, is probably version seven. She's my favorite. Um, <laughs> and we had significant, I, I always say, Version one, and it was either four or five 
I did not care for. Uh, truth be told, um, I really didn't even like those women. Uh, version one, yeah. we were addicted to each other. Uh, we were high school sweethearts. We didn't know any better. Laura wanted to get out of the house, to be honest. Um, you know, all that stuff. I wanted to have sex. So we get married for all the wrong reasons. And that first year is pure hell because we're two immature 18 and 19 year olds. Uh, the next couple versions I really liked. Then the kids showed up. Dang and it. the mom version, the mom version was a drag. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm <laughs> laughing right now. I kept thinking when they grow up, I'll move back up the ladder. Yeah. Um, and in some sense I have, but very honestly, you know, one of the moms was saying in the group last night, she's in her sixties. She, she looked at all the men and said, Hey guys, these are still our babies. We don't care how you view them. And that reality of that. So, you know, the other version I talk about, uh, Laura had an opportunity to work for Vice President Quayle and yes. came to Phoenix for the, the presidential campaign in 1996. Um, and I needed to sacrifice where we were living and what we were doing. And that led in year 15 to our, our worst marriage year. So one of the things I think it's really important to say as well, Jim, is that we've been married 39 years. Year one, year seven, year 15 were very bad. There were times in year 15, I'm pretty sure both of us would have just soon shot each other hmm. as to continue another day of marriage. Uh -huh. But our relationship with Jesus kept it, us in it. And then God did a, an amazing, miraculous thing at year 15, we found great healing, great restoration with each other, and frankly, the last 25 years have just been a blast. We've almost not had a fight. So when we talk about being married to other people, it, women or men, it's recognizing we evolve as human beings. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully your yes. spouse continues to develop as a human being, and therefore you get version 1.2, and then version 1.3, and then version 2.4, which is awesome, you know, because now you got a whole new operating system. The version of the, the woman I'm married to now, I would say, is version 4. She arrived after year 15, and then we've got 4.1, 4.2, 4.3. I think we're on 4.4 now, and I adore this woman. This one's awesome, but, but she would not be who she is today if we hadn't gone through that whole developmental phase. Yeah, it's so funny, man. I was talking to my wife. Uh, we were in the hot tub a couple of months ago, and I was teasing her that she didn't really know me. And she goes, well, what do you want to know? And I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, which which gym do you want me to tell you about? And I go, what do you mean? There's more multiple gyms? She goes, oh, yeah. I said, well, what's yep. your favorite? She said, I really like vacation gym. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you made a comment. You said that you found great healing and restoration. And, and to, for me, Don, for me, the, the, the most important thing in the book for me was something I'd already discovered about my wife. I discovered it about seven years ago. We've been married 26 years. And when I discovered this thing about my wife, it took our relationship to the next level. Now, I'm not as smart as the next guy on the, the next apple on the tree. It took me a while. But if our younger guys can figure this out early on, it will change their marriage. And you said on page 14, you said you talked about the dreaded moment the revelation when you discover that your wife is broken, broken. And, and when, I, when I finally realized my wife has a brokenness in her, and I'm not going to go into what that brokenness is, but when I discovered her brokenness, it changed everything because I was able to speak life 
into her area where she was broken and heal, healing into that area where she was wounded. Can you walk these younger guys through this concept of un, uh, unveiling or discovering our wives' brokenness? Well, the reality is when you live together, as hard as you try to be on best behavior and as hard as you try not to show the wounds that are yours, eventually they, I call it trickle, they trickle out. Your, your bride gets a, a glimpse of it. So let me, let me talk about me. Now, I, in fact, I talked about it, it played this morning. Uh, I, I had an, a series of events with pornography in my early years of marriage and ministry. And Laura discovered that. Now, I work, I, I can't even tell you how many pastors have been sent to me for remedial and healing and all of that, yeah. um, and couples. I, I mean, I've lost track of how many. Inevitably, the brides will say, you pig, you disgusting, blah, 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 blah. My wife said to me, wow, let's talk about how we can help you overcome that. And so what I talk about with men and women all the time is to say, when you see that that first bit of authenticity, that first bit of darkness, how you respond as a spouse dictates whether or not you're going to see any more of, of their darkness and their woundedness. And so, you know, we tell the story in the book that, that Laura came home from her first year of college in Warrensburg, Missouri. She said, Don, I feel like I need to tell you this. I'm kind of attracted to the guy next to me in class. And I'll tell you what, I thought I was going to throw up. And out of that, you know, I then realized, you know, now that you mention it, I'm still attracted to other females. That's an interesting interesting thing to think about. So then we followed the biblical motif of disclosure, exposing to the light. And it was interesting, Jim, immediately for both of us, we talked about, okay, how do we disarm this? How do you think of him in a negative way? How do I think of her in a negative way? How do we disarm these natural mechanisms? And wow, it, it disappeared. And mm. so then we discovered, boy, if we could be authentic with each other. So out of that, years later, Laura began to show more and more of who she really was. Her need to, if I, I think I can frame this well, uh, Laura was a former Miss Teen New Jersey. Um, you know, she acknowledged to me years later, you know, it's really important to me that I look good. And she said, I'm I'm not pleased that that's a, a value to me. And I immediately went, boy, I get that. I And so we, when we disclose our brokenness, our woundedness, and then instead of being repulsed by it, we say to each other, hey, let me come alongside you and help you deal with that. And so, interestingly enough, I learned out of that, Jim, there's not a day that the planet is spinning that I don't text my wife, you are the most gorgeous hunk of woman I have ever laid eyes on. Because I understood, you know, think about it now, she's 58 years of age. If you ask her, Laura, uh, have you aged? She would say to you, I am an old bat unworthy of going out in public. Now, I would say, are you kidding me? You haven't aged a day hardly since 29. Once we understand each other's woundedness and we come alongside to heal it, you know, mine's in the area of, of competing, Jim. You know, I think one of our man card issues, yeah. uh, you know, when I still do the death march every year, um, 
I'm no longer the first one about cross the mountain, and that bothers the daylights out of me. And I'm getting to the place. You know, I play basketball at 5 o'clock in the morning still, and I told Laura, I said, you know, I think I've just about decided basketball is a young man's game. And we laughed. And so, you know, my need to still be able to be – you know, one of the things I, I love the story I tell in the book is that I asked Laura early on, what do you love about me? And she said, you're a great father. Mm. And I went, What? Because in her mind, she was showing me respect and say, you're a great father. I said back to her, I don't care about being a great father. I want you to be attracted to me and think I'm a stud. So now my wife texts me. It makes me laugh. She does it once or twice a week. She'll text me and say, good morning, stud. I mean, no, I just laugh my head off because it's discovering these weaknesses. And when you think about Ephesians 5, Jim, you know as well that the mandate to husbands is that you might be able to present her to the Lord without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And and I encourage women to do the same. Come into this relationship and be a healing agent for your husband as well. Yeah, that that's so good. I, I want to uh, draw out something here because uh, you talked about darkness, and sometimes our darkness is a sin, but sometimes it's just brokenness. That brokenness, yep. sometimes it's sin. Like my wife's brokenness uh, does not lead to sin necessarily. It leads to insecurity. And so I have to speak healing into that and uh, to help her. But you made also made a comment about your wife, and I'm talking about my wife as well. You said, you need to frame this well. The area where I failed the most as a father and a husband when I was in the bubble, when my kids were all in the house, was I oftentimes, and I'm ashamed to say this, I would frame my wife as crazy, irrational, and so, so the kids would see her as this mom who gets crazy. You know, one of my kids said, "Mom, you're a, like Barney it in public, but you're T Rex in, in private type of thing." And so, <laughs> and I go back and I realize, and I read this in your book. I thought, if our young guys can get this, we have to, we have to put our wives in the context of where we want them to be and where God wants to be. And you explain this as framing. Can you walk our younger guys and our older guys through framing and how important this is in a marriage? Well, the reality is that the culture has it upside down. We think how we feel dictates how we think. The reality is how I think about Laura dictates how I feel about Laura. So one of the the, the early things that I learned early on is if I, well, it's simply biblical. If I will think those things which are good, pleasing, perfect, acceptable, blah, 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 it's amazing how I feel about my wife. I think she is superwoman. When I focus on her faults, well, I think she's a pretty ugh, kind of human being. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, one of the things that I do in my own journey, uh, on my iPad, on my phone, on my computer, we talk about it in the book. It, it's Laura laughs about it because it took her a long time to accept it. I keep on all of my devices my favorite pictures of Laura. They're of her in a bikini. I probably have 30 of them. They flash through my, and they're the pictures I see of Laura over and over and over and over. And Laura would get embarrassed, you know, if I'm speaking, which happens, I'll speak at a church somewhere and I got my iPad and it goes to sleep when I bring it up. You know, there's this picture of Laura in a bikini that you really can't see from the platform, but (laughs) in her mind, people see it. And and we actually went to war over this, and she said, I, it really embarrasses me when your buddies see those pictures of me. And I said, girl, I get it. 
but this is the image I carry of you in my mind. I, I can't wait to be around this gorgeous hunk of a woman. And while other guys are looking at pictures of women that are inappropriate, I'm looking at my wife and framing her in the best possible light. So I think as we frame our spouses, Laura and I do not think negatively of each other. And let me just tell you, there's plenty of negative to think about. We just refuse to do it. And if you came to me, Jim, and said, hey, Don, you know, Laura's got a problem. I'd say, hold on, dude. You realize i got to live with this woman, right? You realize that you're polluting how I think about her. So take that conversation somewhere else, not with me, because I work very hard to think that which is good, pleasing. And I'll tell you very honestly, I'm super attracted to my wife. I think well of her. My feelings toward her are constantly good. And with that, Jim, you know, Laura talks about this a lot. We don't expose each other to negativity. And, and I'll just give you a silly illustration. Uh, it's in the book as well. We've never seen each other urinate. Now, that sounds silly, but, but I said early on, you know, sweetheart, there are some images of you that I want to carry around. One of them I'm not real interested in carrying around is you sitting on the toilet doing your business kind of thing. And I said, with that, I'm not real crazy about you thinking about my man tool as a peeing device. So I just soon you not come <laughs> into the pleasure bathroom. pleasure device. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly right. So oh those, those, the framing is critical. And Laura says in the book, girls, why look at things regarding your husband that you're going to have to think about later or force yourself not to think about. Well, so uh, we don't we don't do the rude and crude right. in front of each other, all that kind of stuff. Oh, I was just there thinking. I don't know about you, but I don't know if it's a female thing or what. But my wife, I don't know, I don't know how she can eat food, but she does not poop. Yep, it, it just mine I, too. there's some miraculous deal in with her. She just doesn't do it. She doesn't poop. Nothing. I, I mean, I'm like, whoa. I don't know how you do that, but I love it. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, I I think you're right, and I think how we communicate about our wives to other men. Uh, we need to frame our wife, and I wrote down the word protect. If I'm yep. framing my wife as a rock star, I am protecting her, and I'm putting a hedge or a, a guardrails around her saying, nobody can penetrate this area. This wife, this woman is protected. And I think yep. even as we, and you, I mean, we've even seen in recent recent news, a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these bank of church pastors falling for, for not, for, for framing their wife in a way that would, allow other women to come into the situation. We got to be very, very careful. You said something earlier. I want to go back and revisit here. Uh, you said how I think dictates how I feel. And I would say as I couple that with love, I think love is more than a feeling. I would say we have to rise into love through action in order to fall into love through feelings. It almost yep. sounds very similar to me. Do you agree with that? Uh, totally. Well, Absolutely. Well, Don, you've been talking a lot about your love. What do you call it? Your love tool. What do you call it? His love tool or something? And you know, and sex. Tool. Your his said tool. The tool. And man, I and I and I, I think when uh, and you had said this in your book. You said the first question you ask guys is, uh, you know, how do they how how you know do, how do they do they do they love God or something like that? But then the second question you ask couples, I thought was really interesting because I have found that this question is the question of questions when I ask couples. Tell me about your sex life because you said in your book, and I really appreciate this. You said sexuality is a powerful glue bonding couples together in passionate and unexpected ways. And on page 63, you said sexuality without a doubt is an unexpected bonding agent in marriage. Now, people don't realize how powerful sex 
is Bill Harley in his book, uh, His Needs, Her Needs, talks about this man wanting a, a woman that he's attracted to still. Now, when you say the word unexpected, though, that threw me off. So it's an unexpected bonding agent. Why Why? Unex- why did you throw that word in there? And let's talk about sex for a little while. Now we're going to get all the guys listening to the finish of this podcast. Okay. Well, let's, let's acknowledge that the culture, beginning about two decades ago, came up with the hooking up concept. Yeah, and I yeah. was, I was, I asked, I was meeting with a group of young college students about two months ago. And I said, what, what do you say now to communicate to each other? Let's just have sex with no bonding at all. And they said, Netflix and chill. And I, I looked at him and I said, are you joking me? Netflix and chill is what you call it. And she said, the group said, two of the gals said, yep, that, that's what we mean. And it's this idea, Jim, that we can have intimacy without bonding to each other. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up, that is total nonsense. Agreed. And so what happens is we we learn to have sex, we think, without bonding. And so when you have sex and you realize, you know what, I just bonded to you. It's unexpected because the culture keeps saying to me, well, you don't have to bond when you're together. And so I, I, every couple I've ever worked with, I say, come on, are you kidding me? There's an unexpected bonding even when you work very hard against it. And then I say to the college students, heaven help you if you succeed in having sex without bonding. Because then when you get married and you want to bond, you've already ruined the mechanism. You, we call it the Velcro principle. You know that yep. the Velcro doesn't, it doesn't wear out. What happens is gunk gets in the curved piece of nylon. That's good. And when the gunk gets in there, then it doesn't bond any longer the way it should. And so I say to couples all the time. So in the book, I talk about this. A 20-year-old that I counseled many years ago literally said to me, Jim, my husband and I have discovered that sex is really unimportant in a marriage relationship Whoa. if there's true love. And my chin about hit the table. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. But she, now think about this as well. If the young ladies are beginning at 14, 15, and 16, uh, I don't know that I've ever met a 16-year-old male who was capable of performing well. So Correct. now the females are having these lousy experiences with these doped up males. I get it. I was one of them. Yep. Uh, and then they roll into marriage, you know, where the guys have, the reality is that they've all been not only doped up on their own hormones, but they're, you know, up to their eyeballs in pornography. And every couple I work with now in one fashion or another says to me, Don, what's legal? What can we do? Now I talk about it in the book, Jim. I don't know, you know I read exactly it. how old you, I, I didn't know diddly squat at 19. A piece of gold for me was a playboy. That was like, wow! So Laura and I stumbled around for a decade or two, getting bored and going, oh, didn't even know that was possible. As opposed to this generation, where there is absolutely zero left to the imagination. And now they're asking the question, what should be a part of our intimacy? And the expectation the males bring in, and the expectation the females are dreading just creates this angst for all these couples right out of the gate. Yeah, that is really true. You know, it, it, and I have found that, that, that the sex uh, component in a marriage, it really is uh, not only is a unexpected in the sense that there is something that happens, but it's a glue. I mean, I feel like 
couples that are close together, couples that are intimate, couples that are growing, I have re- recognized as my wife and I, now we have been very regular in our lovemaking for 26 years, but I have yeah. found in the last seven or eight years, once I've discovered her brokenness, uh, a couple other things happened in life, launching a nonprofit organization. Once I started framing her differently, once I started treating her more intimately, our lovemaking has gone to a whole nother level of intimacy. Because, yeah. you know, God said at the first ever wedding ceremony, the father or the man will leave his father and mother cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh that one flesh so leave cleave and then somebody explained it as weave and that's so important that love making is such a vital part of the relationship beyond the sex beyond the sex there's a bonding age i think your wife actually wrote it in the book there's a power i think she's the one that wrote that sex is a powerful glue bonding couples together in passionate and unexpected ways. I think that was a section she yep. wrote. And that's just so powerful. I wish our couples could get this. But the problem, and you hit the nail on the head, is that there are so many images flashing out there. Can you imagine the pressure it must put on? And we had a guy, Dave Mendenhall, on our program, talked about sex edition. And he said that the uh, – what's, what's it called? Pornography? pornographic porn industry porn industry there it is that that the people even in those videos are on drugs and doing different things there's a lot of it's not even reality but these young couples are seeing this as reality and it puts the pressure on as a physical component we don't realize it's a spiritual component we talk about in the book what we call the three levels of intimacy the, the having sex the making love and then the zenith which is becoming one so one of the things that Laura said to me early on in our relationship was, hey, Bozo, you are not going to eat away from the house because you haven't ate at home. So Laura's always had kind of this mindset toward me that said, I'm here for you. And one of the things we laugh about in our seminar, and I, 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 just, I can't even believe the woman uttered these words to me. She said one night, hey, listen, I'm exhausted. Do whatever you want. Just don't wake me up. And I, I went, <laughs> What? And, you know, now we talk about that as masturbation with a partner, so to speak. Yeah. So kind of a, a fourth level, if you will, uh, that that would be the, the foundational level, then having sex, then making love, then becoming one. And that zenith moment, you know, I, I would say, Laura and I have hit that moment maybe a half dozen times in 40 years where our intimacy and our spiritual connectivity – all of that hit this mountaintop experience that you almost can't put into words. But that's a half dozen times. The rest of the time, it was masturbation with a partner, it was having sex, it was making love. And when you understand the role that those play, now here's the funny part if we have just a few more minutes. We do. As we've approached our late 50s, we've had to take an entirely different approach to this whole thing. One of the things Laura talks about in one of the video series is that she had always thought sexuality had to be spontaneous. About three years ago, we realized if we wait on spontaneous, which for us meant after the kids are in bed, you know, on vacation, whatever, well, you know as well as I do, pretty soon the kids are up till two in the morning and you're in bed at eight o'clock at night. So we, we literally had to say to each other, okay, we don't have the spontaneity. We don't have the drive we used to have. We don't have the. We, we got to be more mechanical, for lack of a better term. So uh, we're in our late fifties, as intimate as we were in our forties, but the start mechanisms are very different. We just say to each other, "Hey, 
I'll meet you at the house at 2 o'clock on Tuesday because the kids are going to be at work, blah, 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 blah. Let's make this happen because it really is important in our relationship. Yeah, it definitely changes as you get older. And and um, I don't know if it was your wife in the book or you who wrote this, but one of you wrote, Sexuality, reckless surrender to another, taps into our deepest essence like nothing else can. And then later on, lovemaking is an acquired art form a dance of sorts always always acquiring an in-depth knowledge of your partner that is so good because that what somebody said to me oh that guy over there he's had sex with you know 200 women and i said well that's fine i've had sex with one woman 2,000 times so Mm -hmm. which who's the bigger stud you know what i'm saying it's like we, we we've got this we've got these these young guys and you get this out of their head that it's about sexual partners it's about their number what's your number but what what I have learned in my marriage, and I think what you said in your book, Don, and I want you to explain this a little better, a little more, is that that there that that person that we're married to, we have to have a PhD in her body, and we have to have an yep. in depth knowledge of her spirit, of her soul, yep. to ha- to have her unleash everything upon us, and for us to unleash everything upon her, and to experience that zenith moment, it takes more than physical. Yep, it's an art form. You called it. Yeah, it's like dancing. Laura and I uh, have gone ballroom dancing over the years. We take lessons. Uh, one of my churches, we used it as an outreach, and I would find myself dancing with um, young ladies and, and, you know, 18, 19, 20, 25. And one of the things we, we, we learned out of that is if you have ever ballroom danced, there, there's a there's a fundamental way to do it that everybody does, but even in that, there's the subtleties of the way she leans, how she likes her back held, blah, blah, blah. In intimacy, there's a nuance to your partner. There's a, there's a, a depth of knowing her that she yes. likes it just this way, not that way, that she doesn't like this, she likes that, uh, and vice versa. And when you know that PhD, if you will, when you have that intimate knowledge of your wife that another man on the planet doesn't have, and I will tell you frankly, I don't care how many partners you have, you can't, you cannot discover all that in a year. Correct. It it takes years and years of dancing together to go. Okay, now I have this. Now I get what it is you really like. What helps you to get to that place? And I would also say most of the couples I work with don't have these conversations. They don't sit down with each other. So Laura and I have discovered we don't talk about sex during sex. And and for us, we don't talk about anything important really sitting down. We always go for walks or drives. And, and the intentionality of saying, sweetheart, I'm dumb as a rock. Can you help me understand because clearly you're not like what I thought you were like based on the movies I've seen, the books I've read, yada, yada, yada. You're, you're a unique creature. And Laura says the same of me. Clearly you've got some things about you, whether it's brokenness or it's good things, that I need to understand better. I really need – so conversation is extremely important if you're going to learn to dance well yes. so that you can hit those upper echelons, the we call it the swinging from the chandelier moment, which is just below that oneness 
and it's it's a wow experience if you know how to dance well. Man, well, I really appreciate your uh, honesty and openness in your relationship, and and just you're just kind of putting it out there. It's really good. And I want to end. I've got two more questions for you. This one is found all the way back on page 188, and you've talked about it once already in the podcast. And I I think if our young guys can understand this, if I knew this going into marriage, it would have really helped me to understand the motivations behind uh, my wife and her comments and mine towards her. You said that marriage is the greatest spot remover to the human condition. And I, I would agree with that. My wife, I'm a better man because she's had to remove a lot of spots from this boy. I was a Dalmatian, you know, and, and, I, and that this marriage is about spot removal, but it, it, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. Can you walk us through the spot removal uh, to the human condition as it pertains to marriage? Well, the reality is that when you see that first dark spot, how you approach your partner um, is really, really critical. And, and how you react to the dark spot. Uh, I say to gals all the time, if you shame your husband, he will close up like a clam. He's True. done. You're not going to see any more... Conversely, if you get that shock looked off your face and you're able to <laughs> help him and and remove the spot, you know, it's it's for example with Laura with me, I probably have a higher than average sexual drive even in my old age. And part of that's just, you know, I'm an active guy, yada yada yada. And my wife has never shamed me about that. You know, she's never said, "Oh, you old dog, get over it." It's always been Okay, sweetheart, how can I help you, you know, navigate this uh, even as you're you're aging? When I respond to her and and how her wounds are, then we begin to heal each other and and after 40 years of living together, Laura and I both say we have removed a lot of spots for each other and helped each other heal. And then we're able to take our partners I mean, I can only imagine when Laura sees Jesus and she, her first words are going to be, you realize the train wreck you gave me, right? You realize how many pieces I had to work on over the last 50 years. And I know that the Lord is going to say to Laura, job well done. He was a massive train wreck. You loved him. You healed him. You helped him become the man that he has become. And, and I think that's that role, Jim, we play for each other. And when you get it and you understand it and you're gentle and you're, you know, and you and I both understand, sometimes the Band-Aid's got to be yanked off. Yeah. Other times, you got to soak the thing for three days, and you just have to be smart enough as a spouse to figure out when and how should we deal with this spot. Timing and spot removal is everything. Well, absolutely. If, when she respects me... Uh, it's great. When she disrespects me, I shut down. You know, when my wife, I thought my wife married a stud. She actually <laughs> married a train wreck. I thought I married a babe, and I realized she was broken. And I think yep. that journey over the course of, you know, coming on 30 years has been a wonderful experience. And, and man, I really appreciate all your insight. I love this book, guys. Uh, you need to get this book. Is there a website they can pick this book up on, Don? You know, the I think the easiest and the cheapest, just go to Amazon.com. It's 31 Days to Paradise. It's, it's just the easiest way to do it. That's how I got my book. So, hey, Don, one last question. Here at the Man Card F Podcast, we believe five things make a man a man. They are protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. Which of these five stands out the most to you personally and why? 
Uh, I'm going to say, without a doubt, protecting integrity. Yes. Um, I, I really believe, you know, one of the principles for my life is that every man, if he's going to be a godly warrior, has to meet with the Lord every day. That that strengthening of my character. And one of the things, you know, I, I have devotions with my son every morning as we head to basketball. And yesterday we were talking about the limitations of education, that this culture thinks if you educate someone, you'll fix them. The reality is... Only that intimate relationship with the Lord is going to fix the fundamental brokenness of my life. You can educate me to the cows come home. And so I think as, as you and I recognize that protecting our integrity is, is so critical because there's just so much opportunity for our integrity to go south. It's got to be, you know, one of the books I'm reading right now is called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kinnaman. And he talks about that when we're in the deepest parts of thinking and using brain power, we're most susceptible to temptation. And, and recognizing all of that, that I really do have to protect my integrity because temptation comes at me from all places in my life. Uh, that's the key. you got to keep that strong. That is really good. And I, I think you're right, man. Access to knowledge. We have more access to knowledge than we've ever had in the history of the world, but we're more broken as a as yep. a as a people than we've ever been. So, hey Don, thank you so much for coming on our show, taking the time to share your wisdom, your openness. Tell Laura a thank you so much for uh, the things that she wrote in the book. We really do appreciate you. So, thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, hey men, you've been listening to Man Card Podcast. Changing your world, guys, is the toughest thing you're ever going to do. We've got three steps to help you on your journey. The first thing is enlist. Check out our free resources. They are amazing. Our free app, the Men in the Arena Facebook f- group for men with over 10,000 guys from around the country. And, of course, the Man Card Podcast. Write a positive review. We will send you some swag if we pick your name out of the basket. Number two, invest in our resources. Go get a team started. Do something about your life to make you the best version of you. If you don't like our stuff, go somewhere else. Pick up this 31 Days of Paradise curriculum. There's some great resources out there to make you the best version of you. And the third thing, guys, is change your world. Get involved in championing causes you care about. Serve in your community. Get involved in your church. Give financially to the Great Hunt for God. We will definitely take your checks. And lead a life worthy of of those to follow you. So guys, join us and build an army of men in the arena who are becoming the best versions themselves and changing their world because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Until next time, feel the wet sand of the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Oh my gosh. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out and be a man. This is Dale Culver and you've been listening to the Man Card Podcast. Has your man card been challenged today? If you hunger to be the best version of you, then join the thousands of men around the country on our closed Facebook forum called The Men in the Arena. This is the best place to have open discussions around the topic of manhood. Also, make sure you ask about our newest equipping opportunity called The Man Card Weekend with The Men in the Arena. Let us inspire the men of your organization to become the best version of themselves today. And don't forget to purchase a copy of Jim's new book, The Man Card. Five Characteristics Separating Men from Boys. This is the best book out there that defines what a man is and does. In it, Jim combines his master storytelling abilities with his no-holds-barred style, distinguishing between men and boys. 
Do you want to keep your man card? Then pick up a copy of this life-changing book today. Simply go to the Great Hunt for God app or mancardpodcast.com and pick up a copy today. Thank you for listening to this episode, The Man Card Podcast. This is Dale Culver signing off. Until next time, join our army and become the best version of you. Get in the arena. Let the world feel the full weight of who you are. Grind it out. Be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.